0: must be Thursday. Welcome to Learning Unwrapped, the podcast about your most important life skill, learning. My guest today was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, where his struggles and his upbringing gave birth to his passion for educational equity. Tracked early into gifted and talented programs, he was afforded opportunities that his neighborhood peers were not. Using lessons from his experience as a math teacher, later as an attorney, and now as a keynote speaker, contributor to Forbes, The 74, Edutopia, and Education Post, and author of the books, Thinking Like a Lawyer and Tangible Equity, he founded Think Law, and that is www.thinklaw.us, a multi-award winning organization to help educators leverage inquiry-based instructional strategies to close the critical thinking gap and ensure that they teach and reach all students regardless of race, zip code, or what side of the poverty line they're born into. When he's not serving as the world's most fervent, critical advocate and tweeting about it, he proudly serves as the world's greatest entertainer to his two young children. Please welcome Colin Seale.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Excited to be here.
0: Excited to have you. Tell us about those uh, two little children.
1: So I got Rose and Oliver. Uh, They are in second and fifth grade. My daughter Rose skipped a grade. Um, So you probably have an idea of who runs my household. Um, (laughs) And Oliver is a really sweet kid. His birthday is coming up. And um, I just, I love the fact that they're both in schools that really just push their curiosity. You know, my daughter just started the Arizona School of the Arts. So it's a fifth through 12th grade school, Mm -hmm. technically a middle schooler. So please send your prayers and thoughts. Um,
0: (laughs) To her or the teachers?
1: (laughs) uh, To everybody, everybody involved in a situation, every stakeholder And my son's school is this really interesting project-based learning school. And I like a lot about their instructional model. But really, the reason he goes to this school is because when we went to the tour for the school, they have a slide that takes kids down from the second floor to the first floor. So it could have been the worst school ever, but it has a slide. So we're already (laughs) done at that point.
0: That's so you hope for a schedule that has you on the second floor and then the first, and then the second and then the first.
1: (laughs) Pretty much kids go out of their way to find a way to To come. Find a way
0: to take the slide to their classes. Oh, that is awesome. Oh, you know, isn't that what school should be all about? The slide
1: should, it really should.
0: (laughs) Well, Colin, I'm sitting here holding your book, tangible equity. And I have to tell you, this book is gold. Thank you for breaking down this important topic to offer tangible steps educators can take and push thinking beyond, as you had talked about, mere differentiation. You share the all-familiar image of three students standing on crates to watch a ball game, and you share how you had some advantages throughout your career that just gave you a lot more crates, and to quote, give me 100 crates to stand on, but if I am still watching the game from outside the fence, that's not equity so talk about that and what what will it take for schools to move the students inside the fence and into the game
1: so i'm really glad that we're talking about this and i'm really glad we're using this analogy of the game because um there's this whole sense of sometimes when you hear my story and you hear that you know, my dad was incarcerated for a decade for selling drugs, and we grew up in this sort of struggle on free and reduced lunch, and I'm the first generation of my family in this country. There's folks that be like, wow, and yet and still, despite all of that, Colin, you were able to be a successful teacher and a lawyer and start this work with think law, where you're doing this critical thinking throughout the whole country and 40-something states, and you got these two books and all this stuff. But I'm like, wait, what if we realize it wasn't despite? It was because. It was because. And, and when I start thinking about because I start thinking about like really this idea of what equity is supposed to be. And for those of you that are listening, that are in places where equity has become a four-letter word, right? Like equity has become this scary sort of boogeyman sort of construct. I like to define equity in a way that I think is very universal, something that really can 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 captivate the 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 thoughts and the actual work of what we do in education, no matter where we work, which is. If we're doing equity work, we're reducing the predictive capacity that demographics have on outcomes. That kid that's on the other side of the tracks, those people over there in that trailer park, that place in your community where everybody speaks that language, everyone's that skin color, those kids in your school that have that designation on their files that they're this kind of student with this kind of IEP or this kind of English language learner or their parents have that kind of educational attainment level, those shouldn't be as strong predictors as they are. Right. But it shouldn't be like stories like mine are like an exception to the rule. If we're doing equity work, there is no rule. We've disrupted that rule. So when I think about this thing with the crates, part of what makes me really sort of long for something bigger and better is the fact that in my situation, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, when I got accepted to the Bronx High School of Science, which is considered one of the top schools in the country, nine Nobel Prize winners, it was like, yeah, I won this lottery. What did that actually mean? It meant I had to commute 90 minutes each way to get to school. Right. Because I couldn't walk down the street and go to the school there. Because the school down the street was a dropout factory. But if it was really equity, I wouldn't have to go to the school where nobody looks like me, where I've got to travel super far, be super tired, run down, because I can't have a quality opportunity in my own neighborhood. And be one of a few children of color in that school, as you pointed out. And there's even fewer today than there were back then. And what isn't like really, really bothersome to me is if you look at people who in New York City today say they fight for educational equity, one of the things they fight for is, oh, let's make sure more kids have access to schools like the one I went to. And I say, that ain't it. That can't be it. Put that school in my neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Why isn't that? There's hundreds of schools in New York City. There's hundreds of high schools. Why are we so concerned with those? If we're doing equity, there's this idea of kind of taking tangible equity something that actually disrupts that pattern and something that is more of the lines of performative cosmetic equity, okay? So when you have that eighth grade program and kids are taking algebra one and we say, wait a minute, the kids in that algebra one program don't reflect the the kids in that school, let's get rid of that algebra one program. Who is that helping? How is that disrupting any patterns? Kids with means and resources Their families are going to find a way to give them advanced academic opportunities outside of school. So what are we going to do? If we're really pushing for equity, we would say, let's design a to K-7 system that all but guarantees that every kid will be ready to take Algebra 1 in eighth grade. That's transformational.
0: This is the kind of difference we're looking for. Yes, that's amazing. And that is where we need to be going. For sure.
1: The question is, one, do I even like baseball? (laughs) Is this a game that I'm even really here to play, right? But then it's this idea that like, okay, maybe there is some benefit to having access. Obviously access means something. It means something that I had a six figure salary as an attorney. It means something that we can get kids to be like engineers and be excellent in corporate America. But if it's all about navigating a system and we never talk about dismantling the system, if it's all about playing the game and we never talk about slaying the game, Maybe we're not going far enough. And what Tangible Equity is all about is saying, there are so many things we could do to push deeper, to go further.
0: That's why I'm in love with this book, because you really push everyone's thinking in here. You know, in my consulting work, I work on designing schools that are all about engagement, empowerment, and efficacy. And the key is compliance doesn't cut it. It's not enough. You talk about the fact that schools now are so uber-focused, and I think even particularly post-pandemic, on compliance and rule following uh, to get where we need to go. And then you advocate for learning environments to be, and I quote, psychologically safe for students to wonder, ask, speak up, collaborate, offer alternatives, think creatively. That's not where schools have been. Why do you feel like this is so critical in achieving equity?
1: So... This almost kind of like makes me a little bit emotional to think about. But when we actually have not just a compliance-driven culture, but a compliance-driven culture that looks at compliance very differently depending on what kind of space you're in. If you were to find a school in the United States of America that would be considered a high-achieving school, okay? And you went to a school and you saw that in this school, Kids were walking in straight lines in third and fourth grade. Kids had silent lunch, silent hallways. It's almost a guarantee that the demographics of that school are predominantly black and brown kids in poverty. Okay. And what always gets me, what always what it gets me is that when I was struggling in my first grade class and had all these behavior challenges, and I also had a really bad speech impediment. And through this assessment process of getting speech therapy, it was revealed that I was supposed to be in gifted and talented classes since I was in kindergarten. I like to share this experience that I was moved to this other classroom in another school where I had to get bused to because there was no gifted program in my neighborhood. And in this classroom, I had a transformational educational experience. The biggest transformation of all was that I didn't change, though. I didn't change. In this classroom me asking questions all the time was no longer disrespectful it was required for what it meant to be inquisitive and curious in this classroom me telling the teacher hey we shouldn't do it this way we got to do it that way was no longer willful defiance it was required for what it meant to be a leader and an advocate so what that point you're talking about like i can't go around preaching about critical thinking and unlocking brilliance if i don't ask you to think about a fundamental prerequisite question and and it can't be that now it's critical thinking period or time that has to be infused throughout the way we teach children we got to think about a place where like mistakes are honored and cherished and dug into where students are used to a space where they like explain what they're doing and, and and they and they have this voice and i even you know sort of take on the phrase like empowerment a little bit right because when we say empowerment we sometimes presume that it's my job to give you the power when in fact you already have the power. It's just whether or not I have a classroom space that's willing to acknowledge that power. right? willing to regularly give you a mirror to hold up to yourself to remind you like, oh, that's it, I do have power. So that's kind of what we're trying to think about what it means like that psychological safety. Well, and I think it connects to, you had brought up the idea that black children
0: are brought up to think and are told you're going to have to work twice as hard to get, you know, half as far and you challenge that. And I think this is a perfect example. We can't have students in school sitting and second guessing themselves. Should I ask that question or should I uh, push? I mean, your your story, which we won't share because everybody has to read it, uh, where you literally changed the teacher's lesson was brilliant, but you had that psychological safety to jump up there and say, we ought to do it this way. I'm not doing it that way.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes you know there's like this phrase in education we use a lot that i like in some cases and in some cases i think it's absurd like and the phrase is meeting kids where they are mm. so I don't like meeting kids where they are when you might be a child who is in fifth grade, but you're at a second grade level in math and meeting you where you are means I'm setting an unacceptably low standard that sometimes forces you into much more remediation and intervention than necessary. I'd rather obsess with where you need to be and do everything in the power to get you to that point, right? Like where you are is, I guess, helpful to at least know where I need to take you, but I don't really care where you are because I'm not a second grade teacher. I'm getting mm-hmm. you to do as much as possible to get you to be ex- excellent in this fifth grade content. Right. Other space and meeting where you are, what I do kind of work with is there's a space where who you are and how you are ought to be leveraged for academic success in the classroom. I might mm-hmm. wanna start by asking you, Nancy, what's been the most significant date of your life? Who's the most significant person in your community? Right, because you're, you're basically bringing up that meeting a
0: student where they are doesn't mean, oh, you're academically at this level, so I'm going to level down the expectations. You're basically saying, who are you? You are sitting here. How do I get to know you so that I can speak in a way that is going to unleash all of that power that
1: you have inside of you? It's like, I'm not meeting you where you are. I'm meeting you how you are. I meeting you. Mm, who I like you that. Are, I like that. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's that's the distinction here. And See, it's true. Who cares that. where you are? It's yeah. like who are yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. And if I'm meeting you where you are, maybe I'm actually thinking about the fact that you're in Brooklyn, New York, that you're in Chicago, that you're in Florida. Like maybe maybe that's the where that matters, right? Not where you are in my data chart. Right. Right. And that's
0: unfortunately, I worry about these post-pandemic times because schools are under the gun to really. You know, bring up the test course and get it get the get the academics, learning acceleration, etc. And I feel like we will start to lose
1: sight of the students, the people that are in the classroom. And I struggle with this, right? Because I, I think it's a two-pronged thing. I'm never gonna say that academic success doesn't matter. Right? I'm never gonna say it doesn't matter because I believe Absolutely. that education is an important part of interrupting intergenerational poverty, which means a lot of kids are going to have to pass tests, right? Like you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, even an educator, you got to pass tests. So if I'm looking at this thing, I'm like, okay, the achievement matters, but it can't just be this one prong thing. We need the achievement and we need justice. We need both of them. Right. Right. It's not either, or it's both. There's a lot of schools all over the nation right now where they actually have a huge boost in scores. A lot of like Schools that have struggled for a long time have seen a big boost in scores this last academic year. Why? Because a lot of times, even though they might not have counted the scores for letter grade perspectives in 2021, in 2022, they compared it against those scores and they see all kinds of growth. But can we talk about growth and be honest about growth for a second? If all you do is look at growth and there's schools that are able to be top ranked schools because of growth, but yet, a minuscule amount of kids are ever proficient or get to that next level. Do you know what that leads to? It leads to the experience that I saw when I was at Syracuse where kids were valedictorians, salutatorians of their high schools in the Bronx and in Brooklyn and they were taking remedial everything and they were dropping out by December because they weren't ready because we never got them ready. We can't settle for growth when we know that our kids need to be in a world where they're often asked to compete at a ridiculously high standard. So, When I think about tangible equity, I'm not ignoring the the achievement part of it. I'm just really getting into the why the achievement matters and the real understanding that it's not going to be enough. we got to teach a different set of skills on top of that academic success. Right, right. I use the
0: analogy of the Olympics. You see an Olympic athlete excel. The judges don't sit there and say, you know, well, it wasn't quite a 10 performance, but after all, you know, um, he came from uh, tough circumstances. So we're going to give them that. No, it's like, here's the bar. And when you go out into the real world, you're going to have to compete against that. How do we get you there? And we don't get you there by piling more, you know, work on you. I think we get you there by you're talking about getting to know who you are and unleashing that power. Um, I, I was consulting years ago, decades ago in a school that was predominantly black, but the, teachers were um, still predominantly white. And I was in this one classroom. It was a middle school classroom where the science teacher was giving the most boring lecture and his back is to the students and he's just writing on the board. And the kids are like throwing spitballs at each other and throwing paper airplanes and having a ball. And then he says, OK, well, now it's time for the crossword puzzle. And I thought, oh, my God, this is this is crazy. So he gives out this crossword puzzle and the kids like grab their pens and hunkered down on what you could hear pin drops. So now I'm like, wait, this is too weird. So I go over and talk to a couple of kids and I said, "Uh, what, you like the crossword puzzles? And they're like, oh, we love the crossword puzzles. We just have to wait for him to stop talking. And then he gives us the crossword puzzle. So I said, okay, well, you know, tell me about it. And they said, and it was, you know, all of these like science terms that you would put in. And this student said to me, well, look here, this is a 14 letter word, right? So there's only two 14 letter words here. So in the third spot, There's the beginning of a 10-letter word. Okay, well, there's three 10-letter words. Well, only one of them fits with the third letter of the first letter here, matches the third letter there. The children in his classroom were dying for higher order thinking, and they were well advanced beyond him in terms of what they were able to do. But he looked at it like, well, we're just, we have to learn these science terms. And the kids would just like, we just need to get through this until we can actually get to what,
1: Need to learn, and that really struck me. I think one of the most unfortunate diagrams in like teacher prep is that Bloom's taxonomy pyramid and that staircase, because I think it makes you presume you've got to always go in this order, yes. where like you know knowledge applications at the bottom and synthesis evaluations at the top. Like it doesn't have to be in that order. I can use those higher level things to give me the motivation to get those lower level skills. Also. Low-level skills are important. Like, I'm not going to act like those level one, le- level one questions are not important. You know, you still need to know those things. But, like, it's so much of this process. When we work with schools and we help them work with their existing curriculum, like, that's kind of, like, our, our big thing. We help you work with your existing curriculum so it doesn't feel like one more thing. Like, it probably matters that in 1492 somebody sailed the ocean blue, right? But it probably helps to be, like, okay, like, what if you hadn't? What if he hadn't? And if I look at the fact that, what if he hadn't? I have all these different ways of like thinking about, well, it might've happened anyway, or somebody else might've done it or whatever the case is. I can ask this question of like, you know, was this something that we're better off for? Is it something that we're worse off for? There's all these different things that I can do to take this level one thing and add this funk, add the spark to it to allow me to go deeper. There's different motivations behind why he did it. Which motivation seems to be the most prominent which one seems to be the most significant so then i this ranking sort of piece into it and the thing is what i try to tell educators all the time is it can't work if i've got some unsustainable super hard requiring me to be like an amazing creative person to make this happen i need to figure out a day-to-day strategy for being able to light kids on fire like this well, it's interesting you you just
0: described our logo because the, the ID logo is two inverted triangles and we use it to say, you know, the first one where the base is wide on the bottom. We say too often schools are trying to teach skill, 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 skill until at the top you get to apply it. And too many students never get out from under those lessons, those worksheets, those, you know, oh, the student isn't doing well. So we're going to like double up on a math period. And our our philosophy is flip it and give the kids a real world problem to solve. And teachers will say, but they don't have the skills. And we're like, right, but that's going to give them the motivation. And now present the opportunities for them to learn and they will eat up those skills and learn every lower order skill you want because they're trying to solve this really interesting and compelling problem. And so we talk about felt needs. So you just described, uh, I think we're living parallel
1: lives. And you think, you think there's something you named there that I, I, I want to be able to flesh out a little bit more. You know. These kids can't. These kids can't. These kids can't It's probably one of the hardest challenges to overcome in education. But what I've come to realize is these kids can't is really a confession of sorts. It's really me giving testimony that I have no idea how to create the learning conditions such that all kids can. So it can feel like impossible, can feel like I'm in a space. But I think that for education leaders, for administrators, for those that are instructional coaches, anyone who supports teachers in doing their jobs more effectively, we gotta recognize there's only so much we can do with mindset work. I feel much more comfortable with building a skill set that helps you to fight against that mindset because I can't actually go around feeling like these kids can't when I'm giving a set of tools that make it possible so that all kids can if you automatically
0: characterize a student as being unable they will never move further and i think too often I, I started my career in education i flipped over to the world of computer science and i came back and the most notable change for me was that in teaching i was always exhausted, and you know had to get to bed early and when i was in the business world and i was responsible for millions of dollars of contracts I was flying high. I could get by in a couple hours sleep. No big deal. And I realized that in education, there is a tremendous emotional drain because you are responsible for lives. And the best way to protect yourself from that is to presume that, oh, you know, these are the students who can't. Therefore, I'm off the hook. Instead of every student can, what do I need to do and be responsible to get them there?
1: So I want to talk about this, too, because it's hard for me to talk about tangible equity and the need for sustainable change without talking about some of the ridiculousness we see in education. Things you don't to notice until you go into other industries. So, you know, I taught and went to law school at night, which I wouldn't recommend. Don't do that at home. Not the biggest <laughs> idea. But when I when I when I started practicing law at this big firm, you know, they didn't treat me like a first year teacher gets treated. They didn't say, Here's your stuff, right. go, be married, and make it happen. I, I I had a paralegal, I had a legal assistant, I had a, a a senior associate that reviewed my work. I had partners that I looked up that, 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 that I worked with. I had so much support to make sure I could do my job well. I had intense Training and support. I got flown to Miami to take depositions with actors who were paid to be witnesses so that I could hold my craft as someone that asks good questions as a lawyer. And that's all the support they put into me. But as a teacher, I'm like, it's the other way around. I have 85 jobs. I have 85 jobs as a classroom teacher. And I think it's important that we recognize that. We recognize that like we keep on getting more things added to the pot as educators, right? That said, how do I make things work with what I have? How can I take these resources that I'm given, as limited as they might be, and do something with it? I challenge the notion of differentiation the way that we're taught, because theoretically sounds great, right? Meeting the needs of each individual learner. Practically speaking, if I'm teaching secondary and I got 140 kids, how in the world am I gonna do that? So what I challenge you all to do is Take the actual inverse of, like, these kids can't, and in fact, create a classroom designed to challenge the top 10% of your learners. If you're kicking their butts, they in, bait out. At that top 10% level, you have a very different culture established. Some of y'all might be like, "Yo, this Colin guy is off his rocker. What is he talking about? If I do my top 10%, my 90% is going to be struggling. My kids on IEPs are going to be struggling. My English learners are going to be struggling. But if you start to hone in to where the top 10% of traditional achievers actually struggle, they tend to struggle with the funk, with the drama, with the controversy, with the conflict, anything that's not quite black or white. And those happen to be the same exact things that light a fire for my struggling learners. Struggling learners, by the way, are experts at learning how to learn. And learning how to learn is a huge 21st century skill. And if y'all don't believe me, think about the shenanigans you underwent during this pandemic time. How much did you have to learn how to learn? How much did you have to unlearn And my behavior kids, my kids that always give you all kinds of problems, all of a sudden they find a space for themselves when you introduce academic content in this way where they're like, oh my goodness, all this, what had happened was all of a sudden has value in an academic space. I'm interested in your view on schools, school districts,
0: where they designate certain schools as, you know, cream of the crop and they slice off those top 10%. And ship them to another school. I was involved in a in a school district where we were asked to detrack the classrooms, and we ended up, you know, having all the schools, all the students of the different levels. There was, was the, you know, pre the pre college level, the college level, the honors level, all in one classroom. And uh, at at first, the teacher said, "So we will have three different problem-based tasks because we do a lot of work through problem-based learning, you know, and different activity lists for the." providing access to opportunities to learn. So we'll have three different. And I'm like, no, no, you're gonna give everyone the top one, the top problem, the top activity list, the top rubric, and then you're gonna work to get everybody there. And exactly what you were saying, the culture that is created drives the students who may not normally get to that level of achievement to get there because they have models, they have peers, they have people that they can turn to and talk to and, and learn from. And I feel like we do students a disservice when we create these gifted and talented classrooms or schools where we take these students away from being part of the microcosm?
1: When I start looking at the needs of gifted and talented learners, right, I think about this asynchrony between their age and social development and where they're at academically and intellectually. And there's this, there's this this, Mountains and mountains of research that shows that, like, if we're not giving the right support to these kids, like, it actually can have, like, really harmful academic impact and life impacts. You go around to juvenile detention centers, alternative behavior centers, and you see kids who are unidentified gifted, right? They were gifted, but they were square peg, round hole kind of kids, and we left their genius on a table. It's what happens all the time. We see kids who did this work out of Johns Hopkins called The Excellence Gap, where they talk about kids from low-income backgrounds who are rock stars in elementary school at or like like above grade level for multiple years and 25% of these kids from low-income backgrounds aren't even applying to college. Like We're leaving this brilliance on the table if we don't develop it. And -hmm. I I think the way we do tracking, the way we've done tracking historically, it's really different than how we can do like very strategic kind of instruction to push as many kids as far ahead as possible. So there's a researcher, Scott Peters, who had estimated that in elementary schools we can sometimes have up to six different distinct bands of achievement within a single classroom you could be great at differentiation but there's no level of differentiation, differentiation that's going to that make that, make that work right so that top 10 percent model that idea that like we're going to train all of you to get to this hardest pace of it does make a big difference but let me mm-hmm. kind of just attack this other thing about this tracking piece when i taught in seventh grade in washington dc they once gave me a class called math review where I had kids for a double block who were basically at like third and fourth grade levels when they came in. And you know how they looked. They had the slumped shoulders. They had a the lack of eye contact. They were bad at math. They were, I don't do math kids. They were almost tortured and traumatized by math. And I'm like, this is not going to work. I had to reach out to my principal, Ms. Bird, It was like, hey, Miss Bird, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to be able to change this class name to pre-algebra. What? Look, this math review is not going to work. I need you to make it pre-algebra. And do you, can do me a favor? Can you make it a little bit dramatic? I want to be dramatic about it. I want you to come in, make an announcement with a lot of fanfare that after this first week of assessing or whatever, that we decided these kids need to be in pre-algebra. What did that look like? It looked like doing really hard word problems all year to really get their confidence and swagger. Yeah, there were some low level skills we needed to be able to develop, but we did it by going through high levels of critical thinking and by the end of the year, I kid you not. They were ahead of my pre-algebra kids because I had them on a double block with super focused acceleration. What I didn't do is say, okay, you're my seventh grade kids, but you had a third grade level. Let me put you in front of a computer and do third grade work until you get through all the third grade stuff. And then you go through all the fourth, and then you go through all the fifth. That's ridiculous. It's about what do you need right now to be successful in seventh? That's it. What do you need right now to be successful in pre-algebra? And I think that's the thinking that needs to change. Yeah. I'm I'm telling you, parallel lives. Because I taught seventh
0: grade math students. They were all failing. And they were coming in, like you said, slump shoulders, who cares? And I just, I met with them one day and I said, what are we going to do? You know, like, you need to pass math. I want to keep my job. Like, what do we need to do? And I ended up creating an entirely problem-based curriculum. They were engaged in real-world problems. My principal said at the end of the year, all of your students but one passed the state test. How'd they do that? He said, "Did you cheat?" And I said, "I, I didn't cheat." And he said, "Well, maybe you went around and you know pointed to." Uh, and I know I've told this story before. I apologize to my listeners if you've heard it already. But he, he said, "Did you go around and like point and say like try this again?" I said, "No, they they did it themselves." And he was like, "How?" And I said because they've been working hard all year and he was like why and i said because they're engaged and interested and then he said which is similar to what you're saying here um your students outperformed the rest of the the regular ed kids in percentages how did you do it how did you teach that chapter and i said to him like i never got to that chapter but if you motivate students and give them the freedom to learn and like you said you take them and allow their brilliance to shine, they'll run with it. They'll, they'll go far beyond what anyone might ever think they could do because you just allow them to. All right, so, I mean, again, I could stay here talking to you forever, but let's unwrap the learning. So as schools continue to engage teachers in professional development and communities continue to explore diversity, equity, and inclusion, what advice would you give them to make sure that they are keeping it tangible?
1: I think one of the key things you could do to really make sure the equity is tangible is not just thinking about that definition, right? Like making sure that we're doing the work that is disrupting that pattern between predictive capacity demographics and those outcomes, but also thinking about this backlash effect. The reality is that when you got cognitive dissonance, when you're trying to go for an equity sort of framework, it should feel uncomfortable. It should get to a point where things feel a little bit like, oh, uh, challenging. If you're actually sitting comfortably this whole time you're going through this process, I could almost guarantee whatever you're doing isn't actually equity work. And this is why I think there's one important sort of distinction to make. I live in Arizona. I do a lot of work for school in, 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 in schools in the deep south. And with this whole thing around like, you know, critical race theory, CRT, all these things, I came to a point where I recognized that we wouldn't be talking about CRT at all if we did our jobs when it came to RCT, Raising Critical Thinkers, Raising Critical Thinkers, which is why we actually developed a platform called Raising Critical Thinkers for our families to nurture and develop critical thinking at home. Because I know for a fact that we wouldn't hear a lick about CRT if we were confident that kids could never be indoctrinated about what to think because we knew they knew how to think. Yeah. Yeah. That's that RCT sort of difference. So if you got a little game with your kids called informed opinion, which is a game that we have, this is in English and Spanish where I say things like Colin's car won't start. And all you got to do is ask questions. It's like a, a fun game. You go around and tell you, ask questions. Sure. Well, like You know, like, is he using the right key? Did he put gas in the car? Is it even the right car? And all these things that start to happen, our kids start to appreciate the complexity in the simple. And that becomes a critical thinking habit right and we have so many different activities like that that you could do when you're in line waiting for something when you're in a carpool with another kid all these different ways to really get critical thinking going as a system you cannot go wrong with critical thinking so i would even say if you're in districts where people are very like cautious about anything having to do with equity or whatever then you can still get a lot of those same results by being very systemic about raising critical thinkers in your district, in partnership with your families.
0: Everybody has got to buy this book. It's called Tangible Equity by Colin Seal S-E-A-L-E. And you can also follow Colin on Twitter at, at Colin E. Seal, Seale, S-E-A-L-E. Um, Colin, anything else we need to add to the conversation here?
1: I just urge you all to think about this idea. One of the ideas of tangible equity is that you have power so often we're in this space where you're like, I'm just a teacher or that's above my pay grade. I want you to remind yourselves that you have power. And before you think about like taking on the, the big issues that are outside of your classroom, in your community, in your world, think about the power you have for right now, for the tomorrow. Like, what can you do? you got the power to ask kids how they're doing and care about the answer. You have an infinite amount of autonomy around certain kinds of decisions every single day. Don't underestimate the power you have. And if you're using that power for good and you're really intentional about it, your ability to create tangible equity is going to be without, without comparison. That's
0: it. Go forth and make it happen. Thank you so much, Colin, for being here today. I really enjoyed getting to uh, meet you for the first time and talk to you about your amazing work and your amazing books. Well, that's a wrap. I'm glad you could join me. I hope you'll subscribe, like and share this podcast and help me spread the word about the power of learning. Till next time.